Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we continue to walk through this so important chapter, a chapter that is also so often ignored and neglected in many of your churches, Father, we pray that you would enable us to set aside our own personal thoughts and emotions, and experiences. We pray that you would enable us to take an honest look at your word. We pray that you would help us to not be distracted by the cares of this world, but that we would focus our undivided attention upon you and upon your son and upon your word. We pray the Holy Spirit would be our primary instructor and our guide and teacher, and that you would help us to understand your word rightly and to humble ourselves before it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this is now part two of our four-part series through chapter five on church accountability. We're going to be talking about the end goal. What is the goal of church uh, discipline or church accountability? What are we, as a church, trying to accomplish, or what should we be trying to um, accomplish? And by way of introduction, I want to use Hebrews chapter 12 as a way of introducing our text, because the Bible talks about God disciplining His children out of love. And we don't like to think about that. We don't like to uh, talk about it, the idea that God would discipline his own children. Believers seems foreign to us. We like to think of God as just being loving and fuzzy and cuddly and warm. But because of God's love, he does discipline his children, we're told in Hebrews chapter 12. In that passage, in verse 5, the author of Hebrews says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Now, let me just pause and say that there is some debate. There really shouldn't be, but there is some debate as to how the word discipline here in the Greek uh, should be translated or should be understood. In other words, is this discipline in the sense of punishment? Because that's often what comes to mind when we think of the word discipline. When we discipline someone, that they are being punished. We think of terms of it, of it being punitive. Or is it understood, or should it be understood in the sense of training? Because we do use the word discipline in that way. Uh, for example, you have probably heard it uh, said uh, that the United States has one of the most well-equipped and well-disciplined militaries in the world. Well, what do we mean when we say that, well-disciplined? We mean that they are well-trained. They are well-equipped and well-equipped, and they are well-trained. So the question is, does the author of Hebrews want us to... Un- because the Greek word 
can go either way as well. Uh, knowing the Greek doesn't solve the problem. The Greek is mastigao, uh, and it can be training or it can be discipline in the sense of punishment. And so the question is, how does the author of Hebrews want us to understand his use of this word? I do believe that the text itself um, lends itself to our understanding it in the sense of training and not discipline. I get that from both verse uh, 6 and verse 11. Notice verse 6, and here the author is quoting from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, which is Hebrew poetry. And in verse 6, he then goes on to say, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So verse 6 is, uh, as I said, Hebrew poetry, and uh, it is written in the sense of uh, synonymous parallelism. That is, there's various types of Hebrew poetry different ways of writing it. In this instance, we're dealing with synonymous parallelism. And what that is, is you have two lines. The second line really repeats the first line. It restates the meaning of the first line, but simply in different words. You see that throughout the Psalms. You see that in Proverbs. Uh, You see that in the Song of Solomon and in other places. And so notice he says, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, And chastises, so chastising correlates with discipline, and chastises every son whom he receives. And so the Greek word there for chastise is the word punishment, and I misspoke a moment ago. The Greek word for chastise is the word mastigao. And that word always carries the meaning of punishment in the Greek New Testament. So let me clarify, the Greek word for chastise is the word mastigao, and it always carries the meaning of punishment uh, throughout the New Testament. And so it seems here that the author is uh, explaining the first line with the second line. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises, that is, punishes every son whom he receives, that is, the one whom he loves. You also see that in verse 11, if, dis- if discipline is to be taken in the sense of training, then verse 11 seems a bit redundant. For the moment, all discipline or training seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Training? Those who have been trained by training? That seems redundant. It seems odd to say that. Very likely, he means those who have been trained by discipline um, that God brings us through. And so he goes on to say, In the rest of this passage, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? We have had parents who disciplined us, and we respect them. Why? Because as he says, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The point that the author of Hebrews is making is that God disciplines his children because he loves us. And we all understand that as parents, right? I've tried to explain that to my children on 
numerous occasions, I hope it sinks in at least a little bit, that when we discipline them, it is because we love them. It's because we want what is best for them. We want them to grow up to be decent and likable human beings. And so we discipline them. We try to shape their character. And I, and I tell them, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't discipline you because I wouldn't care how you turned out. I wouldn't care how you lived. I wouldn't care what you did. I would only care that you grew up and moved out and got a job of your own. Sadly, there are a lot of parents that raise their children that way, which means they don't actually love them. They wouldn't say that. But the problem, one of the biggest problems in our culture and society today is that parents view their responsibility as simply clothing, feeding, and housing their children. If I do that, I've done enough. I don't really care what you look at on your screen. I don't really care what you do in the privacy of your own bedroom. I don't really care what you do with your friends when you're out on the street. As long as I feed you, clothe you, and house you, house you then I've done my duty. That's not love. Love says, I want what's best for you. I want you to grow up to be a decent human being, to be successful in life, to have good character traits instilled in you. And that comes with discipline, which we use to correct bad behavior and to teach our children, you can't live that way. You can't behave that way. That will never work well for you in life if you continue to treat other people that way. So God tells us, if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, right? The implication is that parents don't always get it right, do we? But we, we do what we think is best, what seems best to us in our limited understanding. They disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good. You see, the comfort there is that God truly knows what is best for us. God truly knows what we need, more so than we even know for ourselves, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Right? It's never fun when God disciplines us. When God brings tragedy into our lives, pulls us through a knothole backwards, that's not enjoyable. If you're a child, you understand what the author of Hebrews is talking about. It's never pleasant when you're being disciplined. You're put on restriction or whatever the case may be. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So God does discipline his own children because he loves them. Sometimes this discipline is direct and supernatural. We see that in, for example, the Lord's Supper at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that those who participate in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner 
whether they be unbelievers or believers who are harboring some sinful, grievous sin that God is aware of, Paul says, some become ill. Some have even died. We also see that, for example, in the event that takes place in the book of Acts with Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5. Peter says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? What? What do you mean? Blam, fall down dead. Right? Same thing happens with the wife. They attempted to lie to the Holy Spirit, to be deceitful, and God simply took their life. But in other cases, God uses the church. We talked about that last week in Matthew chapter 18, the passage on uh, church discipline, as is it is commonly called. I prefer the passage on church accountability. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. And I tried to help you understand that that passage needs to be understood in light of its immediate context, which is the previous passage. And that previous passage, Matthew chapter 18, verses 10 to 14, Jesus tells the parable of which one of you who, ha- who would have a hundred sheep and lost one, would you not leave the 99 and go after the one? Of course you would. That's what you would do. That's what any good shepherd would do. He would go after the one that has wandered off in order to bring him Thus, what we understand is the church is one way in which God disciplines his children by the process outlined in Matthew chapter 18, the example that is set for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The church is one way by which God goes after that one sheep that is wandering from the fold. He leaves it to the church, the body of Christ, to be faithful to his word, to genuinely love each other enough to go to one another. First, privately. If that doesn't work, then you go with two or three others. If that doesn't work, you bring it to the elders. If that doesn't work, we bring it before the church. All of that is designed to bring the wayward sheep back and to prevent them from making shipwreck of their souls. Thus, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 3, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. What Paul means by there, though absent in body, I am present in spirit, he uses similar words. Language in verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord and my spirit is present. What does he mean by that? Really, uh, quite simply, it's a way of saying that Paul supports them. Paul is with them. He agrees with them in mind and in spirit that this is something that ought to be done. He uses similar language in Colossians 2.5. I'll just read it to you. But here it's a little more clear. Colossians 2.5, Paul writes this, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in 
Christ. I am with you in spirit. I agree with you. I'm praying with you. I am praying for you. You have my support. You have my backing. Then he goes on to say in the rest of that verse, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. The thing that he's referring to is what he cites in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And as I uh, attempted to explain last week, this is not his biological mother. Uh, the language uh, doesn't lend itself to that. Paul would have simply said, has his mother, his own mother. But he says his father's wife. He's clearly referring to his stepmother. So I need to correct myself. It was pointed out to me last week. I guess I said mother-in-law a couple of times. Not mother-in-law, stepmother. You got to understand that if you take a gallon of knowledge and you pour it into a shot glass of a brain, you're going to lose some. <laughs> I just hope the important stuff stays. So it's his stepmother, right? Not his biological mother. It is his, his father's wife that uh, he married. Uh, maybe his father was a widower. And so he has somehow entered into a relationship with his stepmother. And Paul says, this is not even heard of among the pagans. And I read a quote from Cicero where he is shocked to discover that something like this is happening within Rome. You wonder what he was thinking. I mean, we're bad, but we're not that bad, right? There's a limit to our depravity. But I think it's worth noting that Paul judges this person. It's worth noting that Christians are to judge each other. We're to judge each other. I know you might be thinking, oh, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say, yes, I know, it's the one verse. It's the one verse that nearly every person on the face of the planet has memorized from the Bible, right? <laughs> Even your atheist can cite this one. Judge not, lest you be judged, right? I know that one. That's what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Don't judge me. But Jesus, when he said that in Matthew 7, 1, did not mean we are not to judge one another, analyze, examine, critique one another in any sense to any degree or on any level, because if that were true, then Matthew 18 is pointless, right? You can't do Matthew 18 if we are not to judge each other on any level. The first stage is if your brother sins, go to them privately and correct your brother. Well, wait a minute, Matthew 7, 1 says, don't judge. Why are you judging me? Right? This is not your business. Mind your own business. Matthew 18 would be pointless, and a whole host of other passages, such as Galatians 
If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Well, before you can restore someone, you have to recognize that they are caught in some sort of sin. And if you recognize that they are caught in some sort of sin, well, then aren't you judging? That requires a judgment of some kind. I see your behavior, and it is sinful. And I love you, and because I love you, I am going to call you out on it privately first. We don't want to embarrass the person. We want to try to fix the problem privately. And if they listen to you, then great. No one else ever has to know about it, right? You move on, all is good. That's the point. So what does Jesus mean in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1? Rather, Jesus simply means this. It could be understood in this way. Condemn not lest you be condemned, is what Jesus is saying. Do not be harsh with others lest they be harsh with you, is what Jesus is saying. In fact, he goes on to say that in the very next verse. Verse 1, judge not that you be not judged, but verse 2, right, context is king, right, context is king. Verse 2 says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, listen, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, what Jesus is saying is understand this, the way you treat other people, don't be surprised when they treat you in like manner. Because when you are harsh with other people, when you are impatient with other people, when you are unkind with other people, what you are communicating to them is this is acceptable behavior. This is okay. Therefore, it's okay for you to treat me this way. But we don't tend to think that way, do we? We tend to want other people to be kind with us, but we're going to be harsh with them. In fact, he then goes on to give a series of parables in the following verses after uh, Matthew 7, 1, to explain, to illustrate this very point. And then all of this culminates in verse 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. In other words, Matthew 7, 1 is saying, treat others as you would want to be treated. Don't be condemning to others lest they condemn you. Don't be overly harsh with others lest they be overly harsh with you. Thus, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul has pronounced judgment on this person, right? And so now we understand that he's not violating Jesus' command in, in Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged. Well, here it's Paul judging. Is he sinning? No, he's not sinning. He's following the steps that Jesus commanded in Matthew 18, 15, and following. This person is dangerous. Very likely, we don't know the background, but very likely he's been confronted. Paul may have addressed the issue in the first letter that he sent to them. Remember, 1 Corinthians is not actually 1 Corinthians. There is a letter written prior to this that is no longer in existence. Paul may have addressed it there. And yet, the guy is still in the church. Nothing's been done. And so Paul now says, I have pronounced, I have already pronounced a judgment on the one who has done such a thing. 
And then he goes on to say, here's what you ought to do. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with, my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. Now here in verse 4 and 5, we see the evidence, and I pointed this out last week, we see the evidence that Paul has in mind, Matthew chapter 18, verses 18 to 20, because he uses similar language, right? He uses, in the name of the Lord Jesus, with the power and authority of our Lord Jesus. If you look over at Matthew chapter 18, you will see the same language being echoed in verses 18 to 20. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Paul says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, with the power of the Lord Jesus. What is that power he's referring to? I think Paul is referring to the power that Jesus states in those verses. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Christ gives the church the authority to bind individuals, to place them outside the church, and by doing so, to essentially hand them over to Satan. Because when the church is gathered in Christ's name, when they are in agreement, particularly regarding church discipline, when they are in agreement and they are being biblical, in other words, this is all being driven not by some sinful motivation, but out of love. We love the person. We care about the person. When it's been done biblically, they've, gone, they've, they've been visited privately on several occasions. They're not listening. And so now they've been visited two, with two or three, and they're not listening. We've made an honest attempt to persuade them. It's been brought to the, the elders' attention. The elders have reached out to them. It's been brought to the church. The entire church body is reaching out to them praying for them, encouraging them. Jesus says that when all of this, when the church is gathered in his name, they are in agreement, they are being biblical, the church has the authority to hand that person over to Satan. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 18. When he says, whatever you bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven. This is the context of church discipline. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That is, if the church declares a particular individual to be an unbeliever, to be in an unbelieving state, therefore they must be removed from church discipline, that judgment, that pronouncement according to Christ is binding in heaven. It will be recognized by Christ at the day of judgment. That's why church discipline is such a serious matter. It's not something that should be done lightly, but it's something that must be done nonetheless for the sake of the church, their protection, and for the sake of that person. 
that they not live their lives believing that they are saved when they truly are not. We're not doing them any favors when we allow them to live as unbelievers and treat them as though they are believers. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father, for two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with you. Thus, excommunication of the unrepentant sinner is, number one, a binding declaration of that person's unregenerate state. It is a binding declaration of that person's unregenerate state. Unless and until, if this is done biblically, according to Christ, then unless and until that local true body of believers lifts the ban of excommunication, that person is in a state of lostness. Excommunication for the unrepentant sinner. And I keep saying it that way because here's what needs to be understood. Excommunication is only ever to be done for one sin, really. One sin, the sin of unrepentance. Because regardless of what the sin is, regardless of how grievous it may be, Christ is clear. As often as someone comes to you seeking forgiveness, we are to forgive and we restore. So it is only for the sin of unrepentance. No, I'm not listening. I don't care. I'm going to live this way. And I'm not sorry for what I've done. It is a binding declaration of the person's unregenerate state. And number two, it is handing that person over to Satan. For, verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Because when you declare, when a church declares someone to be unregenerate, that they are unbelievers and they are placed outside the covenant community of God, then they are outside of God's protection. And when it comes to the unbelieving world, the devil can do whatever he wants. Satan has to get God's permission to do anything to believers. We see that from Job. Satan cannot do anything negative to a single child of God without God's permission. Beloved, there's great comfort in that. That nothing happens to the believer unless it is first filtered through the loving fingers of God. But when it comes to unbelievers, Satan does what he wants. He has a heyday, unless God says otherwise. They are placed outside the protection of God. And thus, in that sense, handed over to Satan. Paul uses that kind of language that helps us to understand here a little more clearly. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So you see there, they, what does that mean to be handed over them? They've made shipwreck of their faith. They've apostatized. And so Paul says, I have handed them over to Satan. Why does he do this? So that they might learn. 
for their benefit, that they might learn not to blaspheme the name of Christ. And so what does Paul mean then, more specifically when he says, for the destruction of their flesh? Well, here are two things that it can't mean. It can't mean physical death. Flesh here can't mean the physical body because otherwise, how would their spirit be saved? Right? If, if they're going to be killed immediately by the devil, well, then how, how is their spirit going to be saved in the day of judgment? Also, it can't mean physical death. Right? The destruction of their flesh can't mean physical death, the destruction of their body, because then verse 11 would be pointless. Verse 11, Paul says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. So Paul says you're not to associate with them. You don't eat dinner with them. Well, Paul, if they're dead, I mean, that's kind of pointless, right? I mean, why write verse 11 if they're dead? So Paul clearly understands they're not going to be killed. They're going to continue to live. Hopefully they'll be saved. Hopefully they will learn not to blaspheme the name of Christ. So what does it mean? Well, it could mean, it could mean the torment of their physical body. Again, I've already mentioned 1 Corinthians chapter 11. God does inflict physical pain on us as a form of discipline, brings illness into our lives. He does that to jar our attention and say, wake up. Focus on Christ. Get your life focused on Christ and stop following the passions of your own flesh. We also see that with Job, right? Now, of course, with Job, that wasn't disciplined. Job was a righteous person. But the point is that Satan couldn't do any of that to Job without God's permission. Ultimately, it was God who allowed that to happen. God is behind, beloved. He is behind and underneath everything that happens in our life, whether good or evil. So it could mean uh, the torment of their flesh, that maybe they'll come down with boils or or, uh, leprosy or who knows. But it certainly means the destruction of their sin nature. Minimally, it means the destruction of their sin nature. This is because Paul uses the word sarks for flesh, which can mean body, physical body. Sometimes it is translated that way. But typically in the New Testament, the Greek word you see for that is soma, for the physical body. But sarks can mean both. But whenever the Bible is talking about the sin nature, it uses the word sarks. I'll give you just one clear example. Romans chapter 7, verse 5, Paul says this, For while we were living in the flesh, the word flesh there is sarks, we're living living in our physical bodies, like we're not in our physical bodies anymore. Remember, he's writing to a church that is still alive. For while we were in, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So what Paul is saying is while we were living in our sin nature, Our sinful passions were aroused within us, but we've been delivered from.
from that, from the bondage of our sin nature. He uses the same word in Galatians chapter 5 when he talks about the, uh, the evidence of the flesh, the works of the flesh are. Then he goes through all of these various sinful behaviors that are the evidence of being an unbeliever. So the works of the flesh, sarch, the sin nature. Thus, I believe that this is what Paul is talking about. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man, excommunication. You are to deliver this man to Satan, put him outside of the covenant community of God, outside of the protection of God. Why? For the destruction of his sin nature. So that, hopefully, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Thus, the idea is that this is to be done in the hopes that God will do his work on him. The Holy Spirit will do his work on him. And Satan will torment his flesh. And he will live and wallow in misery. And hopefully, like the prodigal son someday... If he's a believer, he'll come to himself and realize, I have made a mess of my life. I have wandered way too far. I have got to go home because I am miserable. I am miserable. One of the reasons that when I pray for unbelievers for their salvation, quite oftentimes I pray that they will experience no peace or rest in life until they turn to Christ. Because oftentimes that is what people need. They need to realize my life stinks and I need God. This is why church membership is both biblical and matters. Before you can put someone out of the church, we have to know who is in the church. There's this growing trend in the United States of, well, church membership, that's not biblical. We don't see that word anywhere in the Bible. Well, that's true. We don't see Trinity anywhere in the Bible either, right? But we understand that Trinity is a biblical truth, that there is one God who exists in three persons. And we know that from the various passages in Scripture that we tie together through a method known as systematic theology, We understand that there is one God who exists in three persons. So also, church membership is a biblical truth. I'll give you four reasons for that. First, number one, the New Testament word for church is the word ecclesia. And it means the called out ones. The compound word, ek, out of, it comes from ek and kaleo, ekklesia, the called out ones. Those who are called out both spiritually and physically. Spiritually in the sense that we have been called out of the world by God. Believers are the called out ones. But in a physical sense, it is those who have been called out of their homes to assemble Together, understand that the word is not exclusively a theological term. Ecclesia is a word that you find 
all over in extra-biblical Greek literature. It is the word to assemble. That when the Greeks assembled, for whatever reason, you find the word ekklesia. It's an assembly. It's a gathering. It's a gathering of those who have been called out of their homes to come together for some reason. In the New Testament, that reason just by and large happens to be for the corporate worship of God. This is one of the soundest arguments against the idea that people can worship at home and do church online. You can worship at home, you can pray to God at home, you can sing at home, but you cannot do church online or at home by yourself because the church, by definition, is the gathering of God's people who have been called out of the world, called out of their homes to gather together in one place and worship. Secondly, the word church does not appear anywhere here in chapter 5. You look down at verse 12, you might think, well, yeah, it does there. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside whom you are to judge? The words, the church, are not actually there in the Greek. Our English translations supply it because it would seem odd without it. Judge those inside. Inside of what? Because we understand that Paul is talking about the church. But the question becomes, is he talking about the visible church or the invisible church? What does he mean by inside? What are we putting people outside of? Regardless of how we understand this, Paul sees that there is an inside and there is an outside, right? There is a way of identifying those who are inside the church and those who are outside the church. And it's not simply those who are present Because Paul understands that unbelievers are going to be in attendance and he expects that unbelievers will be in attendance within the local visible church. We see that, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I made mention of this last week, verses 23 to 25. Paul says this, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, he doesn't say, don't let them, right? Because church is only for believers. doesn't say that. And outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. The point is that Paul expects unbelievers are going to be there. The gathering of the church on the Lord's day is not just for believers. It is for unbelievers as well. And yet Paul says we are only to judge those inside the church. Fourthly, excommunication does not always mean physical removal. Because if we physical, physically remove people for unrepentant sins, well, then first of all, we have to remove all the unbelievers. We don't want to remove the unbelievers. If they're coming here wondering what this Christianity is all about and they want to hear the gospel, they want to hear something about God, we don't want to remove them. But secondly, they are believers are not to be physically removed for every unrepentant sin. Now, sometimes they are. We see that in verse 11, Paul says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name 
of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunker, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, and I'm over time anyways. Let me just say that some want to take this to mean that excommunication means physical removal. Just understand that Paul gives us a list. And per 1 Corinthians 4, 6, we ought not to go beyond what is written. He gives us a list, and it's not an exhaustive list. It does not include every kind of sin. He only references certain sins. Thus, for Paul, or in Paul's mind, there are certain sins for which excommunication means you tell the person to leave. But there are other sins for which, even if they are excommunicated, you continue to encourage them to come and you minister to them. What's the difference? We'll deal with that when we get down to those verses. The point, the point is that if there will be unbelievers among us, and we are only to judge believers, that is, those within the true church, those within the invisible church, then there must be a way of determining who is inside the church and who is outside of the church. We call that church membership. We call that listening to your testimony, ensuring that you have a credible profession of faith, ensuring that you have been baptized, ensuring that you are willing to submit to the authority and accountability of the church. Beloved, all of this is to say that in the first century, they had some form of church membership. We don't know what that is. We don't know if it was a list that was kept. Maybe it was in their minds. They could identify. It's a house church. We know who the true believers are and who who aren't. But they had some way of knowing who the true believers are and who those who are not, and they were to judge those who are inside the church. Church membership is a biblical principle that must be followed by churches. Otherwise, it removes the teeth of church discipline. You can't do church discipline if you don't have church membership because you can't put people out of the church if you don't know for certain who's in the church. In the end, in the end, I'll close with this. The ultimate goal of church discipline, of church accountability, listen, is to bring the wayward home. It's love. It's love. It may be painful and unpleasant on both sides, but if you're a parent, you know what that's like. No parent enjoys disciplining their children, and no, parent, no child enjoys being disciplined. But we know this has to happen. Because I love you. That's what church discipline is about. It's uncomfortable to meet with someone privately and talk to them about their sin. But that's what love does. It's not arrogance. It's not pride. It's love. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you um, again for your word that we know is true and trustworthy infallible, we pray, Lord God, that we would be a church that would submit to your word in every aspect, particularly in this one. Lord's church discipline is such a difficult topic to discuss, even more so to practice. And uh, we pray that we would be the kind of church where all of our members respond to the first level of Matthew 18. 
that when we are confronted privately by someone, Lord, we pray that you would give us each a spirit of humility to bow before your word and to, to submit to it, Lord God. And we pray that through it all, you would make us more like Christ in every way. And we pray this in Christ's name.